I have found over the years, personally, but just experientially, that most Christians have a sincere desire to follow Jesus. I think that's safe to say for most of you, that our hearts are to follow Jesus. We've been created, we've been saved and redeemed. We realize we have a purpose, that God has a plan, and we want to follow that plan. We want to walk in the will of God. And yet, I've also discovered that most people struggle with the practicalities of how all of this works. I mean, while I want my life to be in the center of God's will, knowing that that's the best place for me to be, sometimes it's just really hard to know how to do this. Do you ever struggle with that idea? You know, I've been given a set of career options. They both look good on paper. They both make sense on paper. But I want the job that God has for me. Which one do I choose? Praying about moving my family to a new community. But I don't know if, if, if an adventure is set before us or if God is just trying to grow in my heart a renewed appreciation for the neighbors that I have, the community already around me. I've been accepted to multiple schools, great schools, good schools, all focusing on the degree in which I care about, but which one does God want me to attend? I'm in a serious relationship, but how do I really know that he or she is the person God wants me to spend the rest of my life with? Have you ever found yourself in some ways a bit envious of the Old Testament saints? I know I have. I mean, it seems like following God in the Old Testament was just so much easier than it is now. Like Adam. Not too hard for Adam. He walked in the garden with God. Easy to follow him. Abraham heard an audible voice when he wasn't speaking face to face with a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. Jacob you want to talk about an interesting way to be led by the Lord? Jacob wrestled with God. That's how he was led. Joseph. Joseph received supernatural dreams. Moses encountered a burning bush. You know, you're trying to make a big decision. A burning bush is very helpful. That's how Moses was led by the Lord. And later, given the law, when he saw the presence of God descend on the mountain, the people of Israel... I mean, they also had it pretty easy, right? Where do we go? We've just been freed from Egypt. We're going to a land of promise. Our GPS doesn't work. We don't know where we're going. Ah, easy. Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. I mean, how much more simplistic can you get? Samuel heard an audible voice. He had a conversation with God in the tabernacle. God even knew his name. The prophets of old, they were given visions of coming events. The high priest had this weird Urim and Thummim thing. You can look, look that up on your own. Elijah heard the still small voice in the wilderness. Mary and Joseph, not what we would consider to be Old Testament saints, but they had the luxury of angelic messengers telling them exactly when and where they needed to, to travel. Even the disciples had an advantage, right? I mean, pretty easy to follow Jesus when he's physically in front of you. If he goes to the next town, it's pretty clear if you're going to follow him, you're also to go to the next town. So it seems pretty simple. 
Like, have you ever found yourself in some regards a little jealous, a little envious? Like, following God, it was just a real simple, tangible experience. And yet we're told in Scripture that we have an advantage than the Old Testament saints when it comes to remaining in the will of God. For while none of the things we just mentioned we find in the book of Acts, not one, we're filled with the indwelling Spirit of God who serves to lead us and serves to guide us in a very different but equally profound way. Understand, whereas God the Father audibly spoke in times past, in following Jesus, the Son was a rather tangible, practical adventure. In the new covenant life, the Spirit's directives, they require something from us. They require a measure of faith. It's the essence of the new covenant. Faith in his sovereignty over my life and therefore my experiences. You know, the Holy Spirit, his directives are less demonstrative than what we would find in the Old Testament. And in many ways, not as experiential. But this morning, we're going to see several examples, several different ways in our text of how the Holy Spirit leads and guides the people he indwells. You might look to the Old Testament saints and say, wow, that was easy. But they would look to you with envy, that you're filled with the Spirit of God. Well, little running head start, some context to where we are, because we'll start with verse 32. There's been a controversy in the church of Antioch. Jewish Pharisees came to this particular church preaching a different gospel. A gospel, yes, of Jesus, but also of works. Yes, salvation through the Messiah, but also through my efforts and my energies, through circumcision and obedience to the law. And this riled Paul and Barnabas, who not only taught a contrary gospel, the gospel of grace through faith, not of myself, but a gift of God, but they had just spent the last two years, give or take, traveling through Galatia in their first missionary journey, preaching such a gospel to Gentiles. So there was a big to do about this particular controversy. And so in wisdom, the leaders there in Antioch send Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles and the elders as to the particulars here. Let's gain some clarity. In, in Acts 15, the first 31 verses, we saw what's historically known as the Jerusalem Council. And this council resulted in the publishing of a letter a letter that not only made the particulars of that particular issue have clarity, but also they sent this letter to confirm the ministries of Paul and Barnabas. And so with the letter, also we find being sent two witnesses, two additional men, Judas um, and Silas, to not only confirm what took place, the authenticity of the letter, but also their support of Paul and Barnabas. And so they are heading back to Antioch and then we're told, now Judas and Silas, verse 32, themselves being prophets also, they exhorted and strengthened the brethren there in Antioch with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. I can imagine that this church in Antioch 
was the place to be. I mean, you want to talk about like having the pick of the litter. I'm going to go to a Bible study this week, a home group. Do I go to the Apostle Paul's? Maybe Barnabas. Hey, there's this guy Silas in from town or Judas. I mean, there's just a lot of really cool, powerful, radical guys compiled in this church. And so Silas and Judas, we're told they're there exhorting, strengthening the brother, the brethren, Paul and Barnabas also remaining, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. Apparently things were so dynamic, so exciting that when it was decided that Judas and Silas were no longer needed in Antioch, these men that had come with Paul and Barnabas, we're told that they were released, were sent back to Jerusalem. However, if you notice, we're told that it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Literally, it pleased Silas. He found pleasure in staying in Antioch. So he's released. He can go back to Jerusalem, which is where his home is. But he decides, you know what? I'm going to stay here. Like this place is, is happening good place to be. Now, don't overlook that kind of subtle detail, that it seemed good to Silas to remain there. We're going to see in the next few minutes that this was not an accident, that it was actually in the providence of God for Silas to remain in Antioch, because Paul's going to embark on a second missionary journey, and it was the will of the Lord not for him to go with Barnabas, but we're going to see it was the will of the Lord for Paul to take Silas and his second missionary endeavor, which is interesting because when Silas is making the decision, do I go back to Jerusalem or do I stay in Antioch? He had no idea that he's going to be Paul's companion. Now, if he had known that up front, if Paul had come to him and say, listen, I know you can go back to Jerusalem, but I'm thinking about making a change, really kind of, uh, you know, shuffling the deck, going to let Barnabas go, kind of need a new replacement. That would have made sense why Silas would have decided to stay in Antioch, but that's not his logic. That's not his reasoning. He doesn't know that this is on the horizon other than the fact that he decides to stay in Antioch for one reason and one reason alone. He wanted to. It seemed good to him. Silas was enjoying his time in ministry in Antioch. You know, ministry can be fun. I know that seems like a shocker to many. Like, as a matter of fact, I think that God wants us to be in a ministry that we enjoy. I gotta be honest. If I didn't enjoy what I'm doing here this morning, I wouldn't be doing it. And I guarantee you the guys that are on the stage who, who are leading us in worship, they're coming up here early every Sunday morning for a reason. Not only do they wanna worship the Lord and it's a service to Jesus, but they enjoy playing electric guitar or bass or box or singing. They enjoy it. So, you know, if you want to find a ministry, look for something you enjoy doing anyway, and then kind of make it a ministry. It's a good thing. So here's Silas. He's enjoying his time in Antioch. He can go back to Jerusalem, but he just doesn't want to. He likes it here. There's no drama. It's not as though Silas has an extended time of prayer agonizing over his next step. Jerusalem or Antioch, the pros and the cons, I just don't know what to do. Notice, the Spirit of God led Silas to stay where he was through the joy of what he was presently being allowed to do. 
You know, one of the byproducts yielded from the indwelling Spirit of God, we call it fruits, is joy. That sometimes God leads us through joy. That we just enjoy what we're doing, or maybe don't. Like, please understand, misery doesn't equate to godliness. And it's a misconception within the church that the more miserable I am, the more spiritual I am. The more I'm suffering for Jesus, the more Jesus is proud of me. No, the Spirit of God produces joy. There should be a peace when I'm in the will of God. There should be a deep, satisfying joy. You know, it's been said that that we don't work to live or we don't live to work, we work to live, that factors in. If you find yourself enjoying what you're doing and you're given an opportunity to maybe make a change, factor that in. Do I, do I really, yeah, it might pay more, but I'll be miserable. Like what's more important? <laughs> the spirit of God and joy. So we're told that after some days, verse 36, that Paul He says to Barnabas, yo, Barney, let's go back and let's visit our brethren. In every city where we've preached the word of the Lord, let's see how they're doing. Now, keep in mind, it's been two plus years since Paul and Barnabas have concluded their first missionary journey. And notice the motivation behind Paul's desire to now embark on a second missionary journey. He says, look at it, let's visit our brethren and let's see how they're doing. Now, the Apostle Paul is primarily known as a missionary evangelist. I mean, he's known as the guy who enjoyed pioneering into uncharted territories, a man with the heart to plant new works of God, new churches. However, this passage also reveals another component of Paul, right? Often overlooked. Not just was he a missionary evangelist, but he had the genuine heart of a shepherd. While Paul had embarked on his first missionary journey, because the Holy Spirit had told him to go, which was then confirmed by the church leadership in Antioch, this second missionary journey, are we told that the Spirit told Paul to go? We're not, are we? Not like the first one. Instead, in this instance, Paul decides to embark on another journey, a new venture of faith, out of a, well, a restlessness. See, Paul's restlessness here his curiosity. It was the Spirit's way of leading him. Sitting in one place for too long wasn't in Paul's DNA. He was a pioneer at heart, and he had just grown too curious. He had the itch, the itch to go back out, the itch to see how things were doing. And yet this restlessness, it wasn't a bad thing. This stirring in his heart, his curiosity. Once again, these are motivating by the Spirit of God for him to move. Now, there is a caveat we should add to this, and that is that Paul's restlessness, as the Spirit's form of directing him, leading him, and guiding him, it wasn't based out of discontentment. And that's an important caveat. His restlessness wasn't like, I'm just bored. Or I just, I, I, I gotta move. I gotta do something new. I feel stale. No, no, no. His restlessness was based in selflessness. You see, Paul didn't move 
because he was burnt out. He didn't leave because he was searching for greener pastures. His motivation was selflessness. What did he care about? I wonder how they're doing. You know, he had left these people in precarious positions. There was a strong opposition. There was persecution. Paul wanted to go out of a love for them, to check on them, to encourage them. Yes, he was restless and the spirit used that, but it was a restlessness based upon a selflessness. You know, I found that many times restless people make rash decisions for all the wrong reasons. They don't consider their wife or their kids. If you're restless, maybe that's God's way of of leading and guiding you, but check it, test it, bounce it off of the spirit of God and see what's my motivation. God can lead you and guide you in this way. Well, Barnabas, we're told, was determined to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them And he can't even call him Mark. He just says the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia, who had not gone with them to the work. Now, as they begin their preparations to head out on the second missionary journey, the passage is clear that there's a contention. A contention arose, an argument arose. And the subject of the argument was whether or not to take John Mark with them. Now, don't forget that they had included Mark on their first missionary journey, only to have him bail out very early into the journey. This is recorded in Acts chapter 13. Now, on one side of the equation, you have Barnabas, determined to take with him Mark. Not only were these two cousins, but the desire to give the young man another chance. I mean, it was right in line with who Barnabas was. I mean, the man's known in Scripture as the son of encouragement. Giving people a second chance was part of who he was. (laughs) Don't forget, it had been Barnabas who had given who else a second chance? A man by the name of Paul. And yet, on the other side of the equation, you have Paul, who's insistent. So Barnabas determined, Paul insistent, that they should not take with them Mark. You see, Paul understood the difficulties, the trials that awaited them. Paul needed men as traveling companions who would not waver in the work no matter what came their direction. From Paul's estimation, Mark simply didn't make the cut. He had a chance, but he had already proven that he didn't have what it would take for this type of ministry. So, you have this dynamic duo at an impasse. Barnabas was determined. Paul insisted. Both men had their reasons. Both had dug in their heels. So much so, we're told in the next verse, that the contention became so sharp that they departed from one another. What? Huh? Like, we're familiar with the progression of Scripture, but imagine reading this for the first time. Barnabas and Paul? Like, they break up over this? Of all the things, whether or not to take another person for a ministry, that became an argument so divisive, they parted from one another? Come on, say it ain't so. I mean, this would be like Batman and Robin, Avon and Stringer, Zach and Screech, Sherlock and Watson, House and Wilson, Laverne and Shirley, that's for the older folks. Liz Lemon and Jack Donaghy, Wayne and Garth. 
Andy Taylor and Barney Fife, Chandler and Joey, Fred and Barney, Bert and Ernie, Orville and Wilbur, or Tano and the, lawn, and the Lone Ranger, which they should break up because the last movie was horrible. But here they are, this dynamic, Paul and Barnabas, and they break up. They call it quits. They throw in the towel. They can't work through their issues. All right, who's at fault? I mean, was Barnabas being naive? Was he blinded by blood? Was he being unrealistic about Mark's potential, given the reality that he had bailed on the first go-around? Or was Paul being cold-hearted? Was he blinded by disappointment? Was he overreacting, given the reality that at one point he too was in need of a second chance? Who was right and who was wrong? Isn't that our tendency to pick a side? I mean, it's only natural that when faced with conflicts, personal conflicts, human conflicts, situations like this, that our desire is to pick sides. And we do this because then we can point blame and we can rationalize the dynamic. It makes our ability, when we can do this, to process human conflict in terms we can understand, terms we can wrap our brains around. We prefer, when it comes to things like this, contentions and disputes, for things to be black and white. We don't like it to be gray. We want one to be right, one to be wrong. We want to divide into sides, or we just want them both to be wrong. But what if they were both right? Like, is that even a possibility? Think of it like this. The case can be made that it was right for Barnabas to take Mark. God had given him a huge heart for the screw-up. Barnabas was always looking for the fixer-upper. Barnabas had the, the ability to see potential when no one else would have dared make the investment. He had a gift for helping people work through their issues. I mean, praise the Lord, right, for men like Barnabas. Because, you know, every man that needs a second chance needs a Barnabas. But on the flip side, the case can also be made that it was wise for Paul to not take Mark. I mean, God had given Paul such a determination and drive that he was bound to naturally find himself, find himself in dangerous situations. And traveling with Paul, it was not for the novice. You see, the brutal reality is that a man like Mark, who needed time to grow, the flexibility to do so, he wasn't a good fit for the Apostle Paul. I mean, just because Mark had been to REI, bought some gear, had watched Planet Earth, didn't mean he was now ready to follow Paul into uncharted, unpredictable, wild wilderness. Think of it like this. If I decided to go camping, which I would never do, that seems just horrible to me. Like we spend so many thousands of years outside and then we make houses that don't, I like houses. But for the sake of illustration, let's say I decided, you know what, I'm gonna evolve a little bit, I'm gonna break outside of my box. I'm gonna go camping for the first time. Now, going into the woods as a neophyte with someone like Chad Mosley or even Gary Lawler, that would be, for me, the novice, a tragic mistake. You see, a rookie like me would need to start off with someone like Joe Intrican, 
who basically drives his home into the woods and calls it camping. That's my type of camping. One with a bed with springs and air conditioning and a refrigerator. Going into the woods with a refrigerator. My kind of camping. See, I'm afraid that this contention, what's happening here, it was the byproduct of a larger oversight by Paul. While the Spirit had originally sent Barnabas and Paul on the first missionary journey, the Spirit had been specific, had called Barnabas and Paul. And this instance, whose heart was stirred? Was it Barnabas? No, it was Paul's heart that was stirred up with this desire to embark on a new venture of faith. You see, if a mistake was made, I think it was just the natural assumption made by Paul, that Barnabas was supposed to go with him on this journey. (laughs) Honestly, the way that the passage sets itself up, it would make more sense that Silas had been God's man all along. You know, it's an interesting way of approaching this passage, but it tells me a little bit more about how the Spirit leads and guides his people. Consider, you got these two men, Paul and Barnabas, who deeply love each other, They're bros, they're friends, they've suffered together and they love serving Jesus with one another. They're best friends and they love ministry together. So if you're the spirit and your plan is to move them out in two different directions, but you got two guys that naturally wouldn't wanna do that on their own, how do you go about doing it, accomplishing it? How do you get them to split? That's funny, but it would appear that God used the, the one thing that Paul and Barnabas had in common against them. Stubbornness. Barnabas was determined. So was Paul. Neither would back down an inch. You know, the very thing that made them such good partners for the first missionary journey, I think the Spirit is now using to separate them for the second And what was the result of the disagreement? I mean, think of what happens as a result. Two missionary journeys ensue. Incorporating twice the manpower, covering twice the turf. Now, I also think that we make a grave error in automatically concluding these men parted ways, harboring some level of ill will towards one another. Aside from the fact that the passage doesn't tell us this, in concluding his letter to the Colossians, Paul says something interesting to the church there. He says, when Barnabas comes, welcome him. It seems that they still had joint ministry together. Sure, Barnabas walks off the pages of Acts following the scene, but Peter did last chapter. I believe he and Paul maintain their friendship and their love for one another, their mutual respect, but they recognized that this was, this contention was God's way of revealing that their directions in ministry now needed to depart. It wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't a wrong thing. You know, ironically, this is kind of a big debate within like nerdy Bible college students. You know, so you'll have half the group that's like, Barnabas was in the right. And you have half the group that's like, no, it was Paul. And they kind of go back and forth. You know, you could call it iron sharpening iron. I just think it's dulling both blades. It's stupid. But most side with Paul. 
and most against Barnabas in this situation. It's true. If you listen to the pastor's comment on this, this passage, most side against Barnabas. And yet I think scripture and church history alike validate the potential that Barnabas saw in Mark. It would seem that under Barnabas' discipleship, this second missionary journey, that Mark grows, that he becomes seasoned to the point that Peter will recruit Mark to be his traveling companion on a missionary journey Peter embarks on. History tells us that it was during this missionary journey that as Peter is recounting his stories about Jesus, that Mark is journaling them down that would later become the book, the gospel of Mark, 1 Peter 5.13 as your scriptural reference. But you know what? It would also seem that what Barnabas does here in the life of Mark would be a benefit, a value to Paul as well. At the very end of Paul's life, while awaiting execution, Paul would write to Timothy, and he would request that Timothy send to him Mark. And here's why, quote, for he is useful to me for ministry. In the end, Mark would redeem himself. He would prove his faithfulness. And you know what? Barnabas played a huge role in the process. You know, sometimes we need room for the process. Levi Lesko recently tweeted, he says, becoming the person God wants you to be is a process, not an event. Amen, and again, I say amen. And so Barnabas took Mark, sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, we're embarking on a new missionary journey like we did with the first. We're going to put up a map that shows you the motion of the text. Paul, Silas begin their second missionary journey traveling through regions. We're not given specific cities, just regions of Syria and Cilicia. You can reason that in Cilicia, Paul would probably stop at Tarsus, which was his hometown. And we're told that as they're making their way through, they're strengthening the churches, plural, so multiple churches. Once again, I find this interesting. Desiring to revisit churches he had planted on his first missionary journey had been Paul's motivation for embarking in the first place, right? We looked at that. Hey, I wonder what's going on out there. Let's go revisit these churches. But knowing that Barnabas would logically head to Cyprus because that was his hometown, Paul does something. He adapts. Note, his motivation is to go out for what purpose? Strengthening the churches in the cities that he had planted a couple years before, revisiting the churches in the first missionary journey. Ironically, he never reached Syria or Cilicia during his first missionary journey. He gets to Lystra and Derby and then reverses back going back around. So so he never gets to this area, but his motivation was to revisit churches. So Barnabas goes to Cyprus. So what does Paul do? He's like, okay, we need to go a different direction. He's flexible. We're going to go to an area that wasn't really my plan. He deviates. He heads home to Cilicia. He works through Syria. In essence, think of it that Barnabas goes through the front door and kind of Paul has to work his way around the block to get to the back door. Again, it would appear that if not for his falling out with Barnabas, this was not the journey or the route that Paul would have chosen, which is interesting to me 
Because here we find the Holy Spirit leading Paul where he wanted him to go all along, not just using this conflict, but by Paul showing a bit of flexibility to deviate from what he originally set out to do. Please realize, concessions and deviations from what we think is best might actually be God's way of leading us down a path he knows is best. So Paul and Silas come to Derby and Lystra, chapter 16. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. And Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted to have him go with him. So he took Timothy, Paul, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep. This is the letter they were given from the church in Jerusalem, which was determined by the apostles, the elders. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, increased in number daily. So from the area of Cilicia, Paul and Silas travel west into Galatia, the back door, getting to the cities of Derby and Lystra. And note, it was in Lystra that Paul was stoned to death. Amazing he would go back there. And it would seem that over the course of the last two to five years, it's debated, since Paul had last been in these cities, that a certain disciple named Timothy had become a young man of some type of admiration. He was a nobleman. He had a godly report among the churches. Timothy, he's kind of unique. While we're told he was the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, we're just told that his father was Greek, which could indicate either his father had already died sometime before this, or that in addition to being in a home that was ethnically mixed, he also came from a home that was religiously divided. 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, we're told that his mother's name was Eunice and his grandmother, who was also a follower of Jesus, was Lois, but we're never told that his father was a believer. Now it's clear, even with a spiritually absentee father, that Timothy's mom and grandmother proved to have a tremendous impact on his spiritual life. Luke tells us Timothy was well spoken of by their brethren who were not just in Lystra, but also Iconium, which was 40 miles away. This young man's reputation was so good that it transcended even his local church there in Lystra and was known in the region among other fellowships. I wanna make a side observation before we continue. But if you are a spiritual widow, and I mean that in all respect, but it's the best way to describe maybe what you're facing. Your husband is absentee when it comes to the spiritual life of your family, the spiritual health of your children. If you are a mom doing it alone, never underestimate the positive impact that you can still have on the life of your children. Timothy's Timothy's father was absent, and yet his mom and his grandmother left him with such a legacy that he was well-known. You know, it seems that the key for Timothy's successful development, even when his birth father was spiritually absent, was that his mom made it a priority to keep her son plugged into church. And that's important if you're a spiritual widow, because what this allows you to do 
is for your son, for your child, to have other spiritual fathers. They can't, rep, you know, they can't replace dad. No one can but they can leave a godly legacy in the life of your son. Make it have a a masculine impact that every boy needs. We're told that Paul here is so impressed with Timothy that he wanted to have him go with him, continue in their journey. But there was just one problem. Since Paul's custom, when he gets to a new town, was to start his evangelism in the local synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. The fact that Timothy being half Greek, was not circumcised, this would prove to be limiting. They wouldn't allow Timothy into the synagogue. It would be an obstacle, a hurdle. Timothy would be unable to jump over apart from it. So we're told, and I'm sure at the willingness of Timothy, Paul took him. This was Paul's doing. It wasn't like we're going to go down to the local clinic. Paul took him and circumcised him. Now, we mentioned this last Sunday, but the only biblical justification I can find, scripturally speaking, for the laying aside of Christian liberty is for the desire to reach the lost with the gospel. Why would Timothy be circumcised? He didn't have to be. Paul had just fought adamantly for his right not to be. And yet Timothy willingly submitted himself. He laid aside a liberty. Why? It wasn't because there was other Christians in the church that had a problem with it. I got a big issue with your foreskin. No, it was the fact that he wanted to reach people with the gospel of Jesus. Timothy wanted to reach Jews that needed to hear of Jesus. Well, Luke tells us that as they... This would be Paul and Silas, and now Timothy, went through the cities. They delivered them to decrees. The churches increased in number daily. Now, verse 6, when they had gone through Pergia and the region of Galatia, so he's kind of eclipsed most of the area that that he ministered to in his first journey, we're told that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So from Lystra, the crew traveled... Through the region of Pergia, the chief city we can imagine being Antioch, that Paul would would visit, Antioch of Perga. They travel through the region of Galatia. Paul's desire is to now move into Asia. Now, this is not like the Orient. This would be north and east. And it's at this point something particular takes place. We're told that though their desire was to move into Asia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word. This Greek word forbidden, it literally means they were hindered. Like they were actively resisted by the Holy Spirit. Now that's weird, right? I mean, the Great Commission was to take the gospel into the whole world, making disciples of the nations. Paul's desire here is just to be obedient to Jesus, to go into an area that doesn't doesn't know of the Lord, to preach. So the Holy Spirit gives a commission, and now the Holy Spirit's resisting Paul from fulfilling the commission. That's strange, right? I mean, why in the world would any minister be refused an opportunity to preach the gospel? Why would the Spirit do such a thing? It seems kind of counterintuitive. Not only that, but how did the Spirit resist them or forbid them? We have no idea. 
Other than the fact that verse 7, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit didn't permit them to go there either. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. So they're unable to head northeast, where Paul wants to go. So he leaves Antioch, travels to Mysia, and, and this is what the passage is telling us, with the hope of now working into Bithynia, finding a different way to get to Asia. But we're told the Spirit doesn't let them. So they abandon the plan. They're not going east. They go west to Troas. Now, it is likely that after being unable to travel directly into Asia, Paul maps out a new course to figure out another way to get into the region. But this plan also fails to materialize. And it's then that Paul realizes something. That he realizes that the Spirit, whatever was prohibiting them from going into this area, the Spirit was behind it. These unspecified setbacks were actually divine leadings. The Spirit was stopping him from going one way because the Spirit wanted him to go the opposite direction, the port city of Troas. Now keep in mind, missionary work, as all Christian labor, must require, it must be directed by the Holy Spirit. We understand that. But don't forget, Paul's original commission had been to fulfill the ministry the Spirit had called him to. And if the Spirit calls you to a ministry, the Spirit also has the right to lead and guide you however he wants to. Paul had learned in his first missionary journey that to have effective ministry, it had to be coupled with an open door provided by God. So Paul's learning here that a closed door is equally powerful. Like, here he is. And he's not sure why the Spirit closed the door to Asia. But one thing seems evident to him. The Spirit wanted him to go a different direction. So the Spirit closes a door, and Paul recognizes the Spirit's closing a door so that I can see that he's opening another. Closed door, open door. (laughs) If you're ever led by the Lord this way, it can be very frustrating. Closed doors are very frustrating, especially when our desire to walk through them is sincere but it would be wise for you to learn that God knows what he's doing. Always remember, a closed door is often the Spirit's way of leading us to the open door he desires us to walk through. So often, we get stubborn, and we want to kick down the door without really thinking that what's on the other side isn't what God wants for us. That's always a bad thing. You know, we'll see this next Sunday, but if not for the closed door to Asia, the case can be made historically that the entire landscape of the world as we know it today would look radically different. You see, the Spirit's closing of the door to Asia was all designed so that Paul would sense the open door to take the gospel into the continent of Europe. Western civilization and culture is impacted because God closed the door to Asia. Now, at this point, and we'll pause working, working forward, but kind of in closing. In Paul's travels here, we've seen the Spirit lead him in varying and unique ways, right? Like there's not necessarily a methodology to it, a, a pattern. 
There's not some type of trick. Once again, it's, it's a journey of faith. At one point, the Spirit speaks to his heart. So he embarks on a missionary journey because it's confirmed by the godly men he has in his life. It's how the first one started. We also see that Paul was led by natural inclinations. Their first missionary journey, why did they go to the island of Cyprus? It's Barnabas' home. The second missionary journey, why would Paul, knowing that he can't go where he desired, why does he go to Cilicia, to Tarsus? Eh, it was his home. It seemed to work out good the first time. Maybe it'll work out the second. So he's led by his natural inclinations, inclinations to head to a place that's maybe familiar. The spirit we see leads and guides Paul through natural causes. He has sickness when Paul arrives to Pathos, but immediately has to leave to head north to Antioch. We see God using that as well to lead Paul in his will. The spirit used opposition, right, to keep Paul in the center of his will. In Antioch, he gets run out of town. That's all right, because God wanted him to go to Iconium. He gets run out of Iconium. That's okay, because God wanted him to go to Lystra. He gets run out of Lystra. Why? That's okay, because God wanted him to go to Derby. You get the point? That opposition can often be the Holy Spirit's way of leading us. God can use moments of conflict, moments of personal contention to get us in the center of his will like he did with Paul and Barnabas. The Spirit can even close a door on what we believe is best for us so we'll walk to the door that he knows is better. We see with Silas that the Spirit can even use joy in our present circumstances, our present situation, to keep us in the center of his will. In conclusion, if you learn anything today about walking in the will of God, never forget this. The Spirit's directives require faith. Faith in his sovereignty over your life and faith in his sovereignty over your circumstances that we're led by an internal compass. Not an audible voice or someone walking before us, but something inside of us that's leading us and guiding us. And the Spirit's mechanisms are not always as demonstrative as the Father or even as experiential as following the Son. You know, I think that the best way to exhort you to walk in the will of God. I'm just going to take it from St. Augustine. He said it this way. Here's the key. You want to be in the will of God? That's your desire? Simple. Love God and do as you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. I've heard it said another way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and then do whatever you want to do afterwards. Why? Is that dangerous? Yeah. But if you truly love God, and you're truly seeking to please God, and if your desire is to be in God's will, then life becomes way more simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. Sometimes it's just residing in peace, residing in joy. And Psalms, we're given a little bit of a, of a detail, an indication that kind of makes this idea of the children of Israel being led from Egypt to the land of promise take on a bit of a different dynamic. If you don't know anything about Exodus, it's, it's a big picture. It's a literal story that's a big picture of our journey with God, leaving the world and heading to the land of promise. And 
we're not left to make that journey alone or without directive. Now, the children of Israel, as mentioned before, are given cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, right? And in our minds, we often see that here they are, they cross over the Red Sea and they look ahead and there's this puffy white cloud. And as it moves, they go. You ever try to follow a cloud like that? Good luck. The pillar of fire by night, that makes more sense because have you ever seen a pillar of fire by night? I have not. So that's got to be a little easier. But we're given the idea that it was out ahead of them, right? And they were following wherever it went. But in Psalms, we're given a, a, a bit of a different idea. And that is that it wasn't out in front of them, but that it was over them. I don't know if you know any of the topography or geography between Egypt and Israel, the land of promise. It's desert. It's kind of a tough place to go. You know, during the day, it's really hot. And so, how do you think the cloud led them and guided them? It was shade. So here they are under the cloud by day. Why? Because that was the coolest place to be. I can be out there in the heat or I can be in the cool place. And when the shade moved... You moved with it. Pretty simple. And the desert at nighttime is cold. And so what was the pillar of fire for? It was warmth. You see, oftentimes, friend, following God, it's about being in the cool place where there's peace and there's joy. And when we make our decisions, we just trust that, Lord, my heart is to love you. My heart is to be to be led by you. So I'm just going to take a step of faith because that's the essence of our journey, right, friend? There's not a methodology. You look at it. God, the Spirit, led them in all different types of ways. But he led them. And he wants to do the same thing in your life. Will you let him? Will you learn to recognize his voice and recognize his leading? Because it won't be the way it is in the Old Testament. It'll be right here in your heart. So, Father, Lord, 